Thank you, Justin. Thank you for reading the word. Good morning. All right, so you guys are a little bit more awake than when Andy did the announcements, which is good. I was a little worried coming in preaching this morning, but good morning. Glad you guys are here. Uh, my name is Pastor Chad, and I uh, have the privilege of continuing our series through the book of 1 Peter, which is one of my favorite books. And so I'm excited this morning uh, to dive in to kind of go through what God has for us this morning. So before we do, I'm just going to pray again um, as we think through his word, and then we will just we'll dig right in. Father, we, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for the, the privilege we have to gather together, the privilege we have to call you Father, and that we are yours. We're thankful for that. I pray this morning that you would encourage us, Lord, that you would convict us and cause us to grow. And Lord, we just I just pray this morning that your word would be powerful, Lord, and just it would not be in the way in any way, shape, or form, but Lord, that you would speak mightily. And so we just pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so it is, it is good to see you guys. It is good to be here at the end of spring break week for many of you. And if you're like me, this March so far has been far better than last year's, all right? We actually had spring break. Some people got to travel. More importantly for me, I got to watch March Madness, all right? Basketball tournament. Andy got to watch wrestling, all right? So that was, and maybe some of, I don't know if anyone else did, but Andy at least did. All right, and so things are, things have gotten, all right, it's a little bit more normal than it was last year. Last year was a weird time. Everything had just been canceled. And so I am super thankful to be here, to be gathering together, no matter where we are, that we can gather together. So let's as we look, we're back in 1 Peter and the verses that, that Justin read. As we, as we look at it, I just kind of wanted to go back through, just kind of remember, because he starts off and he says, but you are a chosen race. And so he starts off in contrast and remembering who 1 Peter was written to, right? It was written to Jews who were scattered throughout Asia, right? Through the dispersion, through persecution, they were scattered. And so... Peter is writing to them. And this, is, this, ser- this sermon series has been so good, just going through 1 Peter and hearing God's word proclaimed, the living hope we have in Christ Jesus. And to be reminded of that over and over again. This is why Peter wrote to them about their living hope that they have in Jesus Christ that is secure. And he talks about that and why we can have hope through everything, through even through hardship. And that we are to be ready, preparing our minds for action. And so he's talking through all these things. And then last week, Pastor Josh preached and he talked about the chief cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ, and that we are being built up in him. And the the end of that passage in verse 8 talks about those who are in verse 7 and 8. It says, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And then Peter moves back to his original audience and to us. He says, but you are a chosen race and a chosen people. And so as you look at it, the contrast was in verse 8, that the people that disobeyed, they stumbled. 
And the idea, or the main thing as we, as we look about this, as we get in back into this passage, is that there is no neutral ground with Jesus. Right? He is either your chief cornerstone, and you are being built up in him, part of the body of Christ, or he is a stumbling block leading to your punishment and your judgment. There is no in-between, like he's just a good guy, he's just a teacher, I like him, but I'm not going to follow him all the way, or I'm not going to reject him. No, Jesus, even when he was on the earth, even in John 3, at the end of John 3, he said, this then is the judgment that they rejected the light. They chose darkness over light. There is no neutral ground with Jesus, and we will see that as we go through this. He is either your foundation, and you are being built and rooted in him, or he's a stumbling block and a cause of offense. And so, right, these people that Peter wrote to were suffering. They weren't, like, living great life. They were suffering. They were dispersed. They weren't necessarily grouped together as they had been all together as a nation in Israel. And so Peter is encouraging them. And we're going to see the, the kind of the main idea as we go through the two points that I have this morning. But the main idea or thing that we see is that who we are, who we are in Christ, determines how we live. All right, who we are in Christ enables us to live godly lives. And in order to live godly lives, we need to know who we are in God. And so this is what Peter is writing to them about, all right? Because, right, who we are as people, right, often impacts how we live, what we do in many different ways, but spiritually even more so. So, I mean, even, you know, as we get the idea, many of you may have filled out brackets for the March Madness tournament, and maybe some of you don't, but that's a big thing at our house. And who we are in might impact how we fill those out, all right? I'm a Michigan fan, and so I, I always pick Michigan to do well. All right? I also think I know more about basketball than I actually do. And so this causes me to pick more upsets because I think I see what's coming. And just because an upset can happen, somehow because I think I know more about basketball, I convince myself that that is what will happen. And even though I tell myself every year, Chad, you don't know as much as you think you know, I still do it anyways. And there's a reason why I continue to finish last in our family bracket, all right? Because I don't know as much as I think I know, but, and who, but it, I constantly do the same thing over and over because that's just who I am, and I like to pick underdogs, and, you know, sooner or later, some of them are going to win. I just picked all the wrong ones this year. So, but seriously, what we are, as we look at this, who we are in God completely changes what we do and how we live. It enables us to live how he wants. And so sometimes we can read through these verses and just overlook everything that it is. But Peter is giving an amazing account. He is going to use a lot of references and passages and descriptions for us, for the church, that were used of Israel in the Old Testament. And that doesn't mean that the church has replaced Israel. That doesn't mean that we've taken their place. We are grafted in, as you see in Romans. We are grafted in to become part of the family of God. And so Peter is writing this. And he says, the first thing, so the first point as we look at this, is that we are chosen to proclaim his praise. We are chosen to proclaim his praise. And we see who we are 
as we are done this and to how this impacts us, who we are in this. It says we are a chosen race, or some of yours say a chosen people, a chosen generation. And just to touch on that, because that is a, a hot issue today, what does he mean a chosen race? Does he mean just Israel, or does he mean a certain race of people? No, some of your Bibles, like I said, translate it generation or just people. He is not calling out one specific race because God created the human race. He didn't, right? God sees the inside, not the outside. Jo God judges the heart. And so he is saying the, the, the key word there is not race or people, is chosen. Right? You are chosen in God. This is the same word he used when he started off the epistle when he talked to them and he said you are um, he said that those of the elect exiles are the chosen exiles is how he referred to them in the first verse of first Peter. We are chosen. God chose us. He initiated. And sometimes it does us good to remember that. We didn't earn good standing with God. We did not do something so that he noticed us. He chose us, right? He manifested his love to us in that he sent his son to die on the cross while we were still sinners. We were enemies of God, but he chose us. And Peter is writing to these people as they struggle, and he reminds them, hey, you are a chosen people. You are chosen by God, not because of what you've done or who you are, but you were chosen by God, a chosen people. And then he moves on and he says, you are a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood. And that, right, when we hear the word priest, we may have different, a lot of different pictures that go on. A lot of us today may think of people who are wearing, you know, the, the black clothes with the white collar as a, as a priest. But obviously the people that originally understood this or received this letter would be thinking of the Levitical priest or the priest of the Old Testament. And if you think back even to our series through Hebrews and just how we talked about the priest and how Jesus is the high priest, the priest after Melchizedek, the high priest, and that he offered sacrifices. And um, Peter writes to them and says that you, we as the church, are a royal priesthood. He said that even in, in the passage last week. He said we are, in verse 5, he said that we are a holy priesthood. So what does that mean that we are our priests? Do we all need to start wearing white collars or does it change what we do? What did a priest do in the Old Testament? What was his purpose? He was to go between the people and God, right? He offered sacrifices. He helped people draw near to God. So what does it mean now that we are royal priests? It means, and there's many things that it does mean, but just a few for sake of time, it means that we can draw near to God, right? That I can draw near to God because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. He tore the veil in two, and now I am able to draw near to God. And sometimes we take that for granted, that we don't think what a privilege we have, that we can draw near to God, that we don't have to go to a priest in order to do that. And just to be reminded of that, even Hebrews 10, 19, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence 
to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a, high, a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and in full assurance wi- of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That is us now. We are able to draw near to God because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We don't have to go to someone else to do it for us. We can do it on our own. What else did a priest do? A priest offered sacrifice, right? A priest offered sacrifices to God. Jesus offered the one sacrifice so that he is able to save to the uttermost those who call upon him. So we now offer sacrifices of what? Sacrifices of praise. We offer sacrifices to God. You think of Romans 12, 1 and 2. We offer our living bodies to him. Now we offer our bodies, our lives, and all that we do as a spiritual act of worship to God. We don't have other people to do it for us. We, as royal priests, offer our bodies as a sacrifice, our lives as a sacrifice to God. We offer sacrifices of praise. Even in Hebrews 13, it talks about this. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. All right, we don't need other people to praise God. We are able to praise God, the sacrifice of our lips, to offer sacrifices of praise to him. We are able to offer sacrifices of doing good. In the next verse, it says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. All believers are priests. Men, women, children. We are all, be- we are all priests before God in this sense. Spiritual priests, a royal priesthood. We are able to draw near to God. We don't need anyone else to do it. We are able to offer sacrifices to him. We don't have to bring it to a priest or to a pastor. And we are able... We are able to do these things to honor God. And it is an amazing thing. All these things that we are able to do. We are able to pray for one another. We don't have to have someone pray to God for us. It is amazing to have people pray together with you. And that is a huge benefit. And prayer meetings on Friday mornings when those happen, those are amazing times. So we pray together, but we we get to pray. All right, and this we take these things for granted. This was like mind-blowing to these people. They, they had lived their whole lives up to a few years before this till Jesus came having to rely on priests to establish their relationship with God. Peter's saying, all of this has changed. You are his chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. And then he says, you are a holy nation. Again, that we are his, we are a nation, we are a community, the church. We are brought together, set apart for him. Our allegiance is now to God. It is not to whoever is over our country. That means we, as we'll see later in Peter, that doesn't mean we don't submit to our rulers, because we do. We submit to the government that God has placed over us. But our ultimate allegiance is to Christ. 
is to God the Father. That is who is our allegiance. That is where our greatest allegiance lies. All right, and you think back even in, in Acts chapter 4 when the, the apostles were persecuted and told not to preach the name of Jesus Christ anymore. They said, who are we to say whether we obey you or whether we are to obey God? We are going to obey God, and you can be the judge of that. They were, their allegiance was to God. We are a holy nation. We are joined together. All right, we, we are a community joined together. And then it says, as he continues on, and it's even, uh, even more amazing, as he says, he just continues to build on all of these things that we have because of what Christ accomplished. And then he says, we are his own possession, a people of his own possession. Not only do we know God, but if you, as he, if you look even at Galatians 4.9, not as it's so amazing that we know God, but that we are known by God. He knows us. He chose us. That we are known by him. Just think about that and let that sit in for a little bit. Like that is, right, that is amazing. The fact that not only do we get to know God, but that we are known by him. The creator of the universe, the all-powerful, omniscient knows us. He chose us to be his own possession. The, the, I mean, the, the, tr- the magnitude and the v- just the depth of the truth of what Peter lays out in this brief verse is amazing. Right? Is it not that all of these things he has done for us, our citizenship is not here on earth. It is in heaven, even as Paul talked about in Philippians 3. And these things are amazing, and he is encouraging and building these people up because of the hardship that they are going through. And why? It's not just to make them feel good and be like, oh, that's great, let's go back on to doing whatever I want to do. Why does it matter that we know these things? It matters because of this. These things were done, God has done these things for a purpose. And what is that purpose? That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And this challenged me, because how often do I take for granted what God has done for me without proclaiming the excellence and the glory of what he has done and what he continues to do? God saved us so that we can tell others the truth of what he has done. He didn't save us so that we can hide it. He didn't save us so that we can try and just be nice people. He saved us. We are his possession so that we can proclaim what he has done. So that we can lift high the truth of who he is and the fact that we are his people. That's why he has done this. And that's why we need to remember this truth. And this word proclaim It's the only time it's used here in the New Testament. Peter's the only one who uses it, but it is to tell the truth, to declare, to celebrate what God has done. Do you celebrate? Do I celebrate what God has done in my life? Do I proclaim it to other people? Do I share it? I share it sometimes with my family. Do I share it with my neighbors? Do I share it with people within the church? Do I proclaim his excellence, his virtue, The fact that he chose us and saved us out of our sin. 
That is why he has done these things. And in case we needed even any more, he said, you proclaim the essence of him who called you from darkness into light. Calling into to mind even in, in Colossians 1, where it says he transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. John talks all about going from dark to light. In the end of John chapter 3, as we said, he said, you know, that the world chose darkness because the light exposed their deeds as being evil. But that he has called us out of that into the light so that we can see his light and magnify the fact that he has done good works in and through us and that he would be magnified and glorified above all those things. We are to proclaim the praise of his glory. And that is why he has done this. And this, this, this convicted me as I studied through this week. Because I, I don't proclaim him as often as I need to. Just to be honest, I do not proclaim the excellence of who God is enough. He has done so much for me. And I need to proclaim it because of what he has done. That's why I need to remember all that I have and all that he has done for me. And then he goes on, if, and if we need it anymore, he inspires us to continue praising because he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Again, they were feeling likely very feeling isolated and set apart, struggling alone. He's reminding them, you are God's people. And he's calling their minds back to Hosea. And Hosea, where he, where Hosea, when he had his children, God gave him specific names to name his children, all right? And my wife and I are looking through for baby names, and none of these have come up. Um, but God told he was to name one of his children, not my people, all right? And then the other one was to be named No More Mercy because the people of Israel had rejected God and they had continued to go after idols and so he was pronouncing judgment on them. But thankfully God is a merciful and compassionate God because he comes back and he says, no, you once were not a people, now you are my people. You didn't have mercy and now you have mercy. God is compassionate. No one knows this better than Peter. How many times did Peter mess up? I'm just reading the, earlier this week in Luke chapter 5 when God told Peter to cast the net over under the right, you know, cast the net, catch fish. And Peter said, all right, just so you know, we fished all night and didn't catch anything. But because you said so, we'll do it. And so, again, it, he says, at your word, and if you just read it from right there, it seems almost like, man, that's amazing faith. At your word, I'll do this. Well, except for the part before that where he said, yeah, we already tried to do it. didn't work. So I'll know that it's your fault that when we fail, we'll know that it was because you told us to. And what happened? They threw the net over, and they brought in so many fish that the net began to break. But the amazing thing that we often forget about this story is Peter's response fell down before Jesus and said, depart from me because I am a sinful man. And what did Jesus do? He said, don't be afraid. Follow me. And so Peter knew 
the mercy of God. And that's not to speak of the, right, when the other times that we've seen him when he rebuked Jesus or when he denied Jesus. Peter knew God's mercy. And this, out of all things, should inspire us to proclaim his excellence, that we need to praise him. And it's funny that, and amazing how God works this, right? Our praise to God is not dependent on whether or not we feel like praising him. It is amazing when we feel like praising God and we get to praise God because it's just a great emotional experience. But that's not why we praise God. We don't praise God because we feel like it. We praise God because of the truth of who he is. This morning, the battle, right, in the word worship, the battle that the Israelites were going to go into, and who did, he put, who did they put at the front? The singers. Do you think that they were like, man, this is so awesome. I've been waiting to be in the front of the battle. You know, forget all those spearmen and the archers and the guys with the swords and all this. We wanted to be in the front because everyone knows singing is how you win battles. All right? No. This wasn't Trolls or whatever that movie is where they sing all the time. All right? To sing praises to God walking into the battle with no, right? I mean, with horns, like ram's horns or harps or, you know, whatever they had back then. They didn't even have electrical instruments. All right, to walk forward praising God, that wasn't because they felt strong. That was because they had faith in who God was. And I'm sure some of them didn't feel like being in the front, yet they chose to praise God anyway. And God honored that. Our praise isn't dependent upon whether things are going right or going wrong. Our praise is dependent on the fact that God is who he said he is, and he is good. And we need to praise him at all times, whether we feel like it or not. And so we see that we are chosen to proclaim his excellence. That is why he has chosen us, and that is just the first two verses. And there's so much, right, that could be said about who God is and why we should praise him. But be encouraged. Because the same God that was encouraging the original audience of 1 Peter is the same God that we serve. Is the same God that has chosen us, who has made us priests. Proclaim his excellence. All right, and the last, second point, last point, is we are chosen to fight sin. All right, and so he moves on. And then he says, beloved, again, he, you know, beloved, he, whether it's Peter or God who loves him, they both do. Peter loved him, that's why he wrote to him, and God loves us, as we even saw in the previous verse. Beloved, he says, I urge you, or I plead with you, is what he's saying. I urge you, I plead with you, to, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which weighs war against your soul. So again, we're going to see who we are determines how we act or enables us to live the way we are. What, who are we in this passage? We are sojourners and exiles. All right, and this gives the two ideas of the fact that we are not of this world. All right, we are of God's kingdom. You read through John, and Jesus continually mentions that, even in the high priestly prayer in John 17, right? He prays, I do not pray that you take them out of this world, but that you 
protect them from the evil one. They are not of this world, but we are in the world. But we are citizens of heaven, or we are exiles. We are passing through. This is a temporary life. This is not where we set our roots. This is not where we set our hope and our foundation. Our hope, our living hope, is Jesus Christ. And so because we are sojourners and exiles, this is not where we live. This is not what we hold to, this world, this earth. He says, I urge you to abstain from fleshly desires. All right, and so abstain, we use that word sometimes, it doesn't sound like you, to resist, to fight against the sin that wages war against your soul. Fleshly desires, sometimes we read fleshly desires and we think that, well, that just must mean like sexual sin or things like that. 